Welcome to Nothing Never Happens, uh, the Radical Pedagogy Podcast. It is an honor today to welcome the historian and cultural critic, Devarian L. Baldwin, to Nothing Never Happens. Devarian is the Paul Rather Distinguished Professor of American Studies at Trinity University. In addition to his latest book, which we're going to talk about in a minute, he's the author of Chicago's New Negroes, Modernity, the Great Migration, and Black Urban Life, and he co-edited with Minka Makalani, the volume Escape from New York, The New Negro Renaissance Beyond Harlem. So we've invited Devarian here to have a conversation about his hot off the press book, In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. There are so many amazing things to say about this study, but I'll start with just saying it is a it myth busts on the far too prevalent idea that universities are always and forever champions of the public good. Um, universities, especially urban universities, universities and cities aren't just centers for learning and teaching. They're also massive employers. They're medical complexes that sometimes will set healthcare standards for entire geographic regions. They also direct whole transit systems. They're real estate tycoons. They have multi-billion dollar endowments that make them tantamount to what Baldwin calls hedge funds that offer classes, except for these hedge funds are tax exempt. Urban universities will carve up cities and their populations to create stylized enclosures for their privileged and to cast out the racialized poor. Then they will enforce those boundaries with private police forces deputized to roam far beyond campus. Professor Baldwin lays out all of this and so much more through historical studies, um, with oral histories of people who live and work in the shadow of universities. I'm just so excited to assign this book. So listeners, go get it. Don't go get it from Amazon. Get it from an independent bookstore. Yes, yes, yes. (laughs) So lots to talk about today, but I just want to launch in by highlighting two of the major commitments and values that I find at the heart of Devarian's scholarship, and not just his latest. This is this is everything. Um, so first, elite educational institutions like universities are not the only, nor are they anywhere near the primary um, expression of intellectual life and creative imagination in this world. Um, everyday people, including the people who are displaced and dispossessed by universities, have wells of knowledge, creative power, and life that. Um, is expressed every day. And what this means, this is the second principle I think is kind of embodied by this work, is that a pedagogy is not a pedagogy of freedom if it lacks a praxis of solidarity with these everyday people who work, live, and survive in the shadow of our educational institutions. So we're really excited um, to talk to you, Devarian Baldwin. Welcome to Nothing Never Happens. Um, We're so happy you're here. Thank you so much. I appreciate you both giving me the opportunity to be here and and what a wonderful uh, introduction and kind of synopsis of what I'm trying to do. I mean, you understand it better than I do, I think, in some ways, which is great. Um, First, just a quick correction, um, because I get this quite a bit, I um, teach at Trinity College, which is different than Trinity University, which is in Texas. Um, But I've met some people at Trinity University, which are great people, but uh, it, it is a different institution, uh, but that's a small thing. The big okay. thing here is that uh, 
I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to have this conversation about institutions of higher education and their increasing role in our everyday lives. Um, with, I think we all know it in the back of our minds, but we don't all have the time um, or the orientation to offer a forensic analysis of the impact of these institutions in our lives that goes simply and far, much farther beyond just simply teaching classes and collecting tuition. Um, they, as you pointed out, are these major employers. They are the largest, let's be clear. They are the largest employers, real estate holders, um, healthcare providers, and even policing agents in major cities and college towns um, all across the country. So that's, as I point out at the end of the book, the, the, the quaint notion of the ivory tower, um, these astute, um, astute institutions of higher learning um, that, that hover above daily lives, that, that myth, the myth of the ivory tower is dead. Um, it's been dead actually for quite a, for over a century. But as you pointed out, the notion of the public good has um, blinded us or um, discouraged us into diving deeper into the, the intimate relationships between higher education, um, the political economy, uh, racial segregation, and the distribution of power in our lives that go far beyond those who we call students. Well, you've answered our first question really well, <laughs> which was uh, to dive straight into your book and your podcast and your interviews um, and, and, and get more specifically into the question, what are the costs when colleges and universities exercise significant power over a city's financial resources, policing, employment, and real estate? And, we, and Lucia, in her introduction, and you've um, answered that a bit, but we want to dive in a bit further on the med yeah. and ed, um, uh, the 800-pound gargoyle <laughs> that ate the city um, of New York and, and other things. Um, so if you could go into to some of those aspects and then we'll pick up on the ones that uh, you don't get to in the very beginning answer. Sure. Okay. So let me, you know, people kind of look at the work that I do and saying, oh, critique, 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 how, how easy for an academic to sit up in his or her ivory tower and offer critiques. Um, so let me just be clear that, that I am not anti-university. I'm not anti-higher education, um, but I wanted to live up to its highest ideals. And, and I, I extend out the logical conclusions of its claims to the point where it must also be evaluative of its own practices. So let's start with, first of all, acknowledging that colleges and universities, they bring ideas and people together and they generate new innovations. They have the capacity to do this in great ways. Um, but there is also a cost to those living in the shadows of these ivory towers. Um, campus expansions um, can generate jobs. Uh, they can raise property values. But in that process, they also raise housing costs and displace residents and neighborhoods of color that largely surround campuses. Uh, campus police forces can add protections to communities, especially violence ravaged communities like the South side of Chicago or Harlem. Um, but these campus police forces also surveil and profile um, those very same residents who are asking for public safety. And these campus police forces, especially if they are private universities, but also if they're public universities um, that are driven by protecting the university interest, they are rarely held to public account. And then finally, higher education's broad control over labor can lower wage ceilings 
and suppress collective bargaining efforts. Um, because let's be clear that because as the as one of the largest employers in cities, um, the wage ceiling that's set by a university dictates wages and benefits for the uh, working class across the board in a city. So if a university raises the wage ceiling, that impacts wage possibilities and benefit possibilities for workers throughout the entire city. So ultimately, this is something I think we don't understand. Uh, the schools are setting the housing costs and land values, the wage ceilings, the healthcare standards, and the policing priorities for whole cities. And as their land, as the site for for-profit research and development, or for um, increased high-value or high-end luxury housing for its most well-heeled students, these have all become money-making um, priorities for institutes of higher education as uh, states have contributed less to the operating cost of institutes of higher education. And I mean both public and private. Let's be clear. Both public and private schools get state money, including Harvard, including Yale, including Brown, including Emory, including Rice and USC. They all get public money. So as states are facing budget constraints and are contributing less money to these institutes of higher education, um, these schools are looking for different ways to be entrepreneurial on their tax-exempt land. And because their land is tax-exempt because of the presumption that everything that's going on there is offering a public good, they are able to engage in for-profit projects with very little public scrutiny or oversight or benefit. And, and moreover, this public exemption gets passed on to the very residents that are in, in, in dire need of property tax revenues that would come from these institutions of higher education for their public schools, for trash and snow removal. Thinking about Texas a few months ago, efforts to maintain the electrical grid. Um, all of these maintenance practices come from property taxes. So what does it mean for a Yale or a University of Michigan to celebrate its increased endowment or its prosperity and not talk about how that prosperity is built on extracting wealth from the residents that surround the campus? And so this is at the heart of my consideration and concern in the work. Yeah, and I mean, I just want to highlight like the, there's there seems to there's such a connection between this university making money off their tax exempt, say, real estate that then drive that doesn't just not contribute back to the community that drives up the property values around town pricing people out right. and then the people aren't just like not getting the benefit they're they're actually paying more taxes mm -hmm. that are supplementing for the university's footprint as people get pushed out further and further and further and often mm -hmm. the tax university is offering for its really you know star faculty and administrators so, like subsidies on housing or paying some of the mortgage. And so this is a really, like we could draw a map mm -hmm. um, to, for a really kind of direct relationship. Well, just to give you two key examples of how this has worked out so people that are listening can really understand this beyond the abstract. So at uh, in the historically black neighborhood of Witherspoon Jackson, um, these residents, reckon, these are homeowners, they recognize or realize that their property taxes were going up but there was not, there were little improvements to the infrastructure, the public infrastructure that surrounded their homes. And they were wondering why. And after some investigation, they began to understand that um, they were next to 
uh, tax-exempt laboratories and university blocks by Princeton University. And they did some more investigation and began to understand that because of the partnerships between Princeton and pharmaceutical companies like Eli Lilly, um, these partnerships were number one, producing uh, research and development that was tax exempt, that benefited Eli Lilly and other corporations. It also benefited the university because it was putting money into the amorphous category of overhead costs and it was allowing them to pay for, for, for stu- graduate student researchers at below market rate. So exploitative labor for research and development. What was being produced, um, the, the intellectual property that was coming out of these tax exempt laboratories was being sold to market to Eli Lilly and then coming back to the university in the form of royalties that these graduate student workers never saw. And so then expanding out beyond the campus, these residents saw that by sitting next to these basically knowledge factories, churning out millions of dollars in royalties, they received the benefit of increased property taxes. And then on top of that, they um, renters that lived in the area were finding that their rental costs were increased because of property or land values being risen, rising around them, but also because these uh, uh, um, faculty workers had more disposable income. And as they were moving out into the surrounding neighborhoods, they could pay more. And so rental housing was being organized and distributed and maintained in a way that would benefit them. So, you know, the tax exemptions that allow for this multi-million dollar research to go on to benefit corporate entities like Eli Lilly or Google or other companies or um, uh, Bombardier or GM for the, um, you know, self-driving motor vehicles at Carnegie Mellon's research work. Um, this is all beneficial to the university, beneficial to the corporate partner, um, but not beneficial to the graduate workers or beneficial to the residents that surround the campus. Another example, real quick, um, Arizona State University, a public university. So it's not just an Ivy League elite in, um, a phenomena um, at a public university like Arizona State University, um, they saw the, contra- the state contributions to that school shrink from in a matter of 20 years from 60% down to 20 to 25%. So they brought in President Michael Crow from Columbia um, to be an entrepreneurial academic, to be the president of the school. And so his whole modus operandi was to figure out ways to monetize the university in terms of research and development, but also in terms of straight real estate deals. So what he understood was that the land that was occupied by Arizona State University was owned by the Arizona Board of Regents, which is what we might call the Board of Trustees in other parts of the country. And so because of that, he began, he saw a loophole in a very real estate friendly state like Arizona. He saw the loophole where he could lease out this public land to private companies like uh, um, um, hoteliers and uh, um, um, retirement community developers. But the real rub is that the biggest development in the state of Arizona, which is State Farm Insurance's regional headquarters, is actually sited on Arizona State University land, and this property remains tax exempt. Now, what he understood was that if he wanted to ask for more money by the, from the state, it would come under state scrutiny about what he's doing with the money. But this little side bypass, this exemption that he found by directly leasing out the land to these private entities. So instead of paying the Arizona State University property taxes, these private companies agreed to pay a 
a, a fractionally smaller amount to Arizona State University. And then the university could use this money to do whatever it wanted to without state oversight. So it's not a mistake that as soon as these deals went through, Michael Crow built a new football stadium and he was able to secure the labors of um, former New York Jets football coach Herm Edwards to come and coach the Arizona State University football team with a lucrative uh, benefits and salary package that was comparable to some lower levels of professional football coaches because of the money he was able to procure through this property tax loophole. And so these are the kinds of things that we mean by being entrepreneurial. And universities love to use the phrases like user-inspired, um, purpose-driven, which are ways, which are code words, are ways to figure out our, our um, avenues and techniques for converting higher education into a corporate or capitalist enterprise in order to extract wealth from graduate student workers, from low-wage workers in food services and on grounds crew, but also ways to extract wealth from the impoverished neighborhoods that surround the campuses. Yeah, yeah not to mention the NCAA athletes who are playing right. at that football stadium. Um, so, and then there, then there becomes, as soon as you bring that, well, we're not a capitalist institution. We don't, right. we're not capitalists. Well, like, because we don't pay our workers, this is a public good. So it right. becomes a circular thing. Um, and there are these cold words like educational purposes mm -hmm. um, for, for the land, apprenticeships, apprenticeships for the graduate student mentoring. workers, public, public safety for the private police forces that basically set the table for these land grabs and land management grabs. So these all become um, uh, uh, nonprofit or public good code words that allow these either public or private entities to engage in for-profit endeavors with public money. It's what I call the public good paradox. Yes. That is precisely the presumption that these institutions offer a public good is what makes them tax exempt based on the tax code and then being identified as 501c3 nonprofits. It's precisely the presumption of them being a public good that allows them to be pub, uh, tax exempt and engage in for-profit interests and practices without public scrutiny or oversight. It's the very, it's the language for you cultural studies scholars out there. It's mm -hmm. the language of public good that becomes a mechanism for capitalist extraction. Yeah. I'm wondering, Devarian, could you talk, could you elaborate as you know you do in your book and um, how, how university policing, whether public or private universities, but also city policing, state policing fits into this picture. I think um, probably many of our listeners are already connecting the dots between this sort of conversation um, and conversations about abolition that have been happening mm. forever in sort of history of policing, but this um, kind of idea that police are deputized to protect mostly white elite property and to criminalize the, the populations, mostly black and brown in a lot of these neighborhoods that you're talking about, poor white people sometimes as well, to, um, to, um, to, to sort of, to, to maintain a kind of apartheid-like separation. Right. So like, well, how does this sort of property management ethos that we're talking about right now fit into both the dispossession of local neighborhoods, but also the, the use of police to enforce that? So a little bit of quick backdrop. Um, up until the 1960s and 70s, campus police forces were primarily stewards of like ki keeping kids out of trouble. 
But it's not a surprise that when we get to the 60s and 70s, which is a time of black and brown student unrest and, and protest, we see the ramping up of private police, of, of police, of campus police forces all across the country. So today, most schools have campus police, 75% of schools, public and private, more private than public. I'm sorry, more public than private, excuse me. Um, but 75% when you average, average out public and private. So nearly all carry guns and about nine and 10 have arrest and patrol jurisdictions off campus. How do we get, how does that happen? What does that mean? So the point here is that, as I mentioned earlier, as these campuses begin to, after years of turning their backs on cities and, and schools had a hand, you read my, in my second chapter, or uh, uh, first chapter, schools had a hand in actually through, you know, through through the manipulation of urban renewal policies in the 50s and 60s, um, had a hand in demolishing black and brown neighborhoods in the inner cities and turning part, major swaths of cities into campuses, primarily uh, uh, university buildings and residency hall, residence halls. But as we get to the 90s, and there's an interest, there's a, the, the children of suburban sprawl, maybe the grandchildren of suburban sprawl want to come back into the cities. Um, universities caught flat-footed with none of the retail and the excitement that these people want. And so now they're competing with, uh, uh, schools are competing with each other for the best and brightest students, uh, faculty, and their, and their children and families for those who want an urban experience. And so they build out what are being called these research districts or these innovation corridors, or these knowledge communities. Let's be clear, there are whole private companies that specialize in building out these knowledge districts. Um, as they build these out into these formerly, these impoverished and divested communities that they turned their backs on 30 and 40 years earlier, um, they engage in what, I'm, what I call extraterritorial expansion. So the police set the table for over-policing and managing the behavior of black and brown residents at large surround campuses that then open the door for property expansion, neighborhood expansion, and community control. What I say basically is the act of turning cities into a campus. And just to be clear, this is not just in these neighborhoods that immediately surround the campuses, but they are the canary in the coal mine because what has been happening in the last 20 years to these um, nearby or, or neighborhoods that are immediately surrounding campuses is expanding the whole cities where the logic of urban experience is being understood largely in the form from for you urban planners in the form of a campus. Fully wired, walkability, congested, coffee shops, libraries, museums, lectures, people's understanding of the city today is largely the understanding of a campus. And so the police become the front line in securing these spaces for conversion, for campus conversion, primarily with predominantly white institutions that sit in majority black and brown and impoverished neighborhoods. And so the police serve a central function um, in the name of public safety. So they argue that, well, our job is to offer public safety for the residents that are there. But, the, but, but when we look at how they function, um, we see a different story. Because if you look at the actual violence or the actual needs of policing on campuses, what are the major crimes on campus? Predict and, and predict we're talking about predominantly white campuses, but on um, all campuses, sexual violence, substance abuse, and theft. 
campus police do a horrible job of engaging in those responses. Some people might say it's capacity. I would say it's intent. Because if we're thinking about the university brand, who wants to publicize, thinking about the Clery Act where you have to publicize crimes, who is going to publicize that their campus is one filled with a cadre of criminals? And white, because mostly crimes are white on white. So instead, campus police post up in the neighborhoods that surround the campuses because they want to signal to parents, predominantly white parents, that as these students look at the city of the playground, that it will be safe for their students. Where in fact, campus policing in these communities or policing these communities would actually be best addressed by addressing food and housing security, trauma care, health care, so when you look at campus police, they do a horrible job, they're reactionary, they, do a hor they don't engage in preventative policing, they do a horrible job of policing actual crimes on campuses, and then they over-police in incorrect ways in the neighborhoods that surround campuses in ways that, that do not suggest campus policing. So ultimately, there is a total disconnect between the function of campus police and actual policing needs both on campuses and in the communities. And so this becomes a reason for calling for abolition. Because when we think about the impact of campus policing in our cities, they are one of the largest police forces in cities and towns. So as we had discussions about over-militarization, and the lack of public accountability around policing. Most of that discussion or a large part of the discussion is a campus policing discussion. And so full disclosure, I'm a problem, I'm a, a executive member of Scholars for Social Justice. I was uh, an architect or a part of, not an architect, but a part of, a follower, a part of Cops Off Campus this past summer. Um, so for me, the only solution is abolition. Abolition uh, does not mean the end of public safety um, because number one, officers were not, are not trained to handle the duties that they are tasked with uh, because of the, a divestment from social services. Um, and number two, nine out of 10 calls for service do not require an armed response. That there needs to be, as abolitionists have said, a transfer of power and resources from the police force to health and trauma care, to food, food and housing security and, and, um, and other areas of social services. This is what policing or abolition means. This is what public safety, I, there needs to be a focus on community policing, uh, residency requirements for police to live in the neighborhood that they police so they actually can understand versus profile. Um, what actually is happening on campuses is that number one, private schools are not subject to Freedom of Information Act laws. So they can engage in policing and not talk about it. Um, students talk to me, as I interview students all across the country, a two-tier policing system, whereby a student and a resident commit the same infraction, the student goes to see the dean of students, whereas the resident goes through the criminal justice system. And so the idea of criminality with predominantly white schools and back in our neighborhoods, criminality or um, locals is profoundly racialized. And so you have these armed security forces that have public authority and no public accountability.
um, uh, uh, Lucia, you, you, you went to Yale. You mm-hmm. know the story of Stephanie Washington in 2019. Um, right. right. We know the story of Taj Blow, the son of Charles Blow, who was thrown to the ground and then apologized to when they found out that he was a Yale student, as if that kind of uh, 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 procedure activity would have been acceptable for a New Haven local. This is the nature of campus policing to protect the brand and to signal safety to white parents in predominantly black neighborhoods as universities expand their footprint out into these campus, out into these cities for uh, economic means, for financial and capitalist extraction. They become the maintainers of wealth as these universities do their business. Yeah. So these universities, yes. as, as you so wonderfully phrase it, are really grifters. Mm. And yeah. um, to go back in time a little bit, uh, you talked some about Johns Hopkins University. Mm-hmm. And first thing that popped up in my head when I read that section was Henrietta Lacks, mm. you know, as, as one of the deeper in inroads into a community and abuse of, of um, local folks mm-hmm. in some really horrific ways. Um, so yeah. I want to get into the med and ed a little bit further. Mm-hmm. Um, how do these, you know, expanding medical complexes mm. with their uh, questionable wages, benefits, um, the folks who work there can't live in the neighborhood, um, neither can the police who mm-hmm. work for these. They, they make low wages also at That's most, right. most of these places. You know, how do they fit into this whole nexus of, um, what you're talking about and, and the expanding footprint and um, you know folks who can't afford health care or have inadequate health care but yet um, these universities are the knowledge economy that, right, that's right. driving the research. Well thank you for that question. First of all the labor question is central and it's not the major it's not the major point of my book but i hope that i say enough about it in the book for people to get a sense of why it's central um number one is that when we think about university labor we think primarily about faculty and staff um but they are a fraction of of the labor that's employed on university campuses the major portion of labor on campuses are the low wage labor of 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 food services of groundskeepers and the support staff that many times are actually berated and abused by administrators and faculty on these campuses. And they are largely black and brown and women that do this work. And, and universities in this nature have become, as I said before, um, one of the primary employers, not just on university campuses, but in cities writ large. And much of and a large portion of the wealth that these universities accumulate is through the extraction of wages and benefits from these workers. And so this goes from the graduate student workers all the way to the full-time low-wage workers on the front lines. And this is especially central coming out of pandemic, and we're talking about essential workers. Um, They are those, and they suffered uh, profoundly. Um, Many of us that work at universities, we saw that the first people let let go during the pandemic were these frontline workers um, on our campuses. But even before they were let go, the pandemic just highlighted the conditions under which they live, which are um, inhumane. Many universities suppress uh, collective bargaining efforts on the part of unionization. Um, They, many of these workers do not receive, they they work on a nine month schedule. 
And so this, what this means is that because, you know, school is out in, 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 the, in, the, in, the, mid, in the middle three months, um, in the summer months, excuse me. And so they don't, they, and they have families. And so they don't receive health benefits in the summer. Uh, and so, and they also many times make, make below living wages because they are paid on nine months, but they live, obviously, we all live for 12 months every year, right? And so these are the kinds of conditions under which um, these uh, frontline low-wage workers um, operate. And then they live in the communities that surround these campuses and look, and they, they amongst their neighbors, um, primarily receive their health care from university hospitals and medical centers. And so what we see is that medical um, centers, university medical centers are also tax exempt um, um, with the presumption that they provide indigent care. But the indigent care provisions have become sort of a moving target whereby um, the kinds of uh, services that are, should be offered at a, either discounted or free rate in exchange for this tax exemption are made less and less visible and vocal on the part of the universities. So what ends up happening is these universities are, 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 um, are engaging in predatory uh, debt collection on the part of these low wage um, and poor and impoverished residents that receive their health care from these medical centers, these university medical centers, um, sometimes pursuing and putting liens on people's homes, um, garnishing wages, and so then what does it mean to, number one, receive health care from a university and then to work there? So the conflicts of interest are just staggering. Um, this also happened when it came to the recent graduate student labor strike at Columbia University, where the university workers, the graduate students receive about a $31,000 stipend on a nine-month cycle. But because that's such a low wage in New York City, landlords won't rent to them. And so what they have to do is receive housing from who? Da, 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 Columbia, right? But then in order to hold a spot all year round, they have to secure the housing even in the summer months when they aren't receiving a stipend from the university. So what do they do? They leave, many of them leave the city and go to cheaper climates and sublet their housing for the three months so they can be able to, they're able to maintain their housing when they get back to work for the university that pays them substandard wages. So the university is their employer, their food service provider, their landlord. And so those graduate students went on strike this summer and they, they were able to secure some, um, um, some wins, but just to highlight the exploitative relationships that these universities have. And so this is a university that, that, that um, generated um, $310 million in their portfolio. Their portfolio increased, their endowment increased by $310 million um, during the pandemic. And they received CARES Act money. Uh, think about the endowment some more. Uh, Harvard University has a $40 billion, as in B, a $40 billion endowment, and they still receive CARES Act money. And this is a university that takes their endowment and uh, buys up land in California in order to control water rights, um, to think about future acts of speculation where they might be, whereby they might be able to profit off of people's limited resource access. 
And let's let's shift and contrast what they're doing with their CARES Act money and that what people are calling endowment hoarding with with what historically black colleges and universities are doing with their CARES Act money. So HBCUs are not perfect and they engage in some of their own exploitative practices when it comes to their workers and their faculty and the neighborhoods that surround them. But given their extremely profoundly uneven start when it comes to their relationship to, to overly um, endowed and funded predominantly white institutions, they start they're starting at much further back on in the race, and they have a diff, but they still have a different ethos when it comes to the CARES Act money. So Columbia, Harvard, just padding their endowment. Virginia State University and Atlanta Clark University, what are they doing with their CARES Act money? They're taking it and using it to finance uh, uh, paying for student debt over the past year. It's embarrassing for these institutions with multi-million dollar endowments, these PWIs, to be hoarding and to not, they should have been paying for student tuition for the whole year during the pandemic. They should be paying tuition period throughout the, Harvard could pay, could, students should be able to go, all students should be able to go to Harvard for free, right? Because their endowment increases with interest every year. But the, the rub is that these schools wanna act like the, the money they're getting, the money, the endowment they have is all the money they're gonna get for the rest of their lives as if this endowment doesn't accrue interest every year, as if they don't receive donations from alumni, as if they don't get public money, as if they don't get tuition every year. So these schools could be doing so much more, but the goal here, and, and my good friend Craig Wilder, when he read my book, he, he um, the, the author of Ebony and Ivy, which was a huge impact on my work, he said he came to the realization, um, or at least it, it crystal, the book crystallized the degree to which teaching classes is basically a side hustle for colleges and universities today, that they are engaging in so many other things. So today during the pandemic, when they're talking about austerity measures, we're, we're facing our, you know, we're facing budget cuts. And so we have to engage in austerity measures. So my alma mater, Marquette University, their decision is to get smaller, to let people go, to fire tenured faculty, to fire staff workers, um, to, to cut down on benefits and resources for um, community outreach, things of this nature. Um, so that is their austerity approach because the public, and this is my, my, my intended service to the to the public um, with the work that I'm doing, is that when we hear about universities, we hear about the relationship between tuition and classes. That's the only contractual relationship we hear. And school administrators, they, they, they profit on that when they make claims about austerity. We're receiving less tuition because students are not coming to class because of the pandemic, and therefore we must have budget cuts. But they aren't even talking about the majority of ways in which these schools do their business. The technology transfer department, the real estate office, the foundation office, the development office, the public safety or policing, the, the, uh, the campus policing office. All of these money-making entities don't even come into the equation when we do an account of the financial resources of these institutions. And that's where they are beginning to make more and more and more of their money. Tuition is becoming a much smaller uh, portion of the ways in which these schools make their money. Not to mention that tuition is actually holding steady while room and board is skyrocketing for uh, 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 lazy rivers, rock climbing walls, uh, 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 stainless steel uh, uh, appliances and countertops um, to continue to appeal to the, the unicorn of the white family that can pay $70,000 a year for tuition. Let's be honest, that demographic's not making babies anymore to the same degree. 
but these universities are still organizing themselves on the model of fighting each other to secure as many of those full paying families as possible. Whereas the future actually for universities is to pell eligible black and brown students of color. But what comes with that, what comes with addressing those students is that the model of university is gonna to have to change. That if you're gonna bring those students on campus, you're gonna to have to service the communities where they come from with affordable housing, with healthcare, with Wi-Fi. that the communities that produce these children will have to be supported. But in the long run, if the, if the university model reorients itself to, to service those communities, sustainability will be much more endearing and enduring because in downtimes, those communities will ride with you they will support these universities if the university invests in them. But that's not been the approach. I'm sorry, uh, no. uh, that went off board from, no, ho from hospitals, but I, it all gets no, connected. No, I mean, it all connects. And actually, I think this is the perfect transition because of course, one of the things we, we like to talk about on this podcast is sort of how people connect their their research, their political critiques and commitments to what they are doing mm. in terms of curricular design and in the classroom. Right. And I mean, there are, there are so many layers to that question, so many directions we could possibly take it, but I guess I'll just start at the most general level. Like mm. when you think about sort of curriculum that is responsive to the kind in a constructive and empowering and liberatory way to the kinds of dynamics you're naming and describing, yeah. as well as like, just like, what does it look like when Professor Baldwin walks into his class and like is teaching about these things. Um, I'm, I'm interested in kind of both levels and all that's in between. I'll just throw it to you. And we'll, we'll You've been listening to part one of Nothing Never Happens, the Radical Pedagogy podcast, and our interview with Davarian L. Baldwin, author of In the Shadow of the Ivory Tower, How Universities Are Plundering Our Cities. In part two, Devarian is going to talk with us about how he does his research and brings it to the classroom. So he's going to take us through some pedagogical steps. So stay tuned for part two. Do, 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 do.